Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Those who seize power are destined to fall to violence, but those who inherit power, they have true legitimacy. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast and Total War Pharaoh. Today, we meet the man who rules Egypt when the events of this game begin. The great pharaoh, Mer-Ni-Ptah, is an elderly man, but his rule is strong and his legacy will shine for millennia to come. Merneptah came to power around 1224 BCE. He was the son and heir of King Usur Ma'at Ra, Ramesses II. Merneptah was not the eldest son of Ramesses, more like the eldest surviving. The prince Merneptah had been born to Ramesses' second major wife, a queen named Iset Nofret, or Isis the Beautiful. But Merneptah was not the first son of the king nor the second, third, fourth, heck, he wasn't even in the top ten. Prince Merneptah was the thirteenth son of King Ramesses II. Ramesses, legendarily, had many wives and fathered dozens of sons and daughters during his long reign. King Ramesses ruled Egypt for more than 65 years. On the one hand, that was a fantastic achievement, a demonstration of longevity, the obvious favour of the gods, and the supremacy of Egypt as a home and a kingdom. It also had its troubles. Because Ramesses ruled so long, all of the sons whom he originally groomed for power, they predeceased their father. One after another, the eldest children died long before their elderly parent. By the last years of Ramesses' reign, he had gone through twelve sons, all of whom dead before their time. That left Prince Merneptah. Merneptah means beloved of Ptah. Ptah is a great creator deity, especially prominent in the royal city of Memphis in the north, and also in the necropolis of Giza and Saqqara. Ptah is a major deity, one of Egypt's most important creator gods, and worship of this deity goes all the way back to the earliest phases of their history. So a name like Merneptah, beloved of Ptah, is a classic Egyptian name, good, strong, traditional. That would make a good description for this prince as well. When his father finally died, Prince Merneptah had been the heir to the throne for approximately ten years. By this point, Merneptah was already a mature man, He was at least in his late forties, possibly even older by the time he inherited the throne. We know that because the mummy of Merneptah survives. It was preserved in a cache, a secret reburial of royal mummies dating to the New Kingdom. Merneptah, son of Ramesses, 
was among that great collection, and scientific studies of his body, including x-rays and CT scanning, have placed his age around the time that he became king at approximately 50 years old. Now, in the ancient world, 50 years was a pretty advanced age. The average lifespan, assuming a person escaped childhood, was roughly late 30s to mid 40s before they finally died. Of course, the royals and the wealthy members of society had access to a better diet and more sophisticated medical treatments, so usually the pharaohs seem to live a little bit longer than the average person. Nonetheless, 50 years old in ancient Egypt was an advanced age. Logically, Merneptah's reign was not going to be long. Following his father's death and burial, Merneptah became the pharaoh. He declared his public identity as the, quote, strong bull who rejoices in Ma'at, the two ladies who acts powerfully against the land of Chemehu, or Libya, the golden falcon, the lord who is feared and great of majesty, the king of southern and northern Egypt, the soul, or the ram, of Ra, beloved of the gods, the son of Ra, Merneptah, beloved of Ptah, he who satisfies Ma'at. This is an example of the five royal names, a feature of the ancient Egyptian kingship which placed the pharaoh in a long tradition of political and religious ideas. I won't break it down right here, but two of Merneptah's royal names are significant. His throne name, the king of southern and northern Egypt, the soul of Ra, or powerful for Ra, and beloved of the gods. In Egyptian, that sounds like Nesubiti, Ba-en-Ra, Meri-Necheru. It's an interesting name. It connects the king specifically with the sun god, Ra, and it presents Merneptah as a powerful individual who perhaps carries the strength of the sun god in his day-to-day rule. Merneptah is also beloved of the gods, a pretty classic phrase for an Egyptian king, but it's not one that we often see included in their names. So apparently Merneptah was quite interested in divine favour, the blessings of the gods, and ensuring that his reign would be a pious one. Merneptah also called himself the Sa-Ra, or son of Ra, Merniptah, beloved of Ptah, Hetep Her Ma'at, or he who satisfies Ma'at. This is an interesting concept. Ma'at is the ancient Egyptian word for truth, justice, the natural order of things, and the world or reality that the gods have established. Ma'at, in short, is the way things are supposed to be, the systems and rules established by the divine creators, maintained by the pharaohs, and part of all society. Ma'at was also a goddess, a personification of the idea in a divine figure. So Merneptah calls himself he who satisfies Ma'at. In other words, he is a king who maintains order, who keeps things stable, and ensures the natural world, the world created by the gods, is peaceful and established. It was a powerful statement for his agenda and how he intended to rule. Of course, things would always be more complicated than that. And Merneptah's reign was anything but peaceful. When his father died and he inherited power, Merneptah became the new king of southern and northern Egypt. He also inherited the Egyptian empire, 
Previous generations had stamped their military, economic, and religious authority over many lands and peoples. To the south, the pharaohs had conquered Nubia, modern-day Sudan, and they exploited its gold mines, its cattle herds, and its many trade links with distant lands in Africa. To the west, the pharaohs had subjugated the Libyans, a loose tribal confederation of people who made their home amid the oases, grasslands, and deserts of the Great Sahara. To the east, the Sinai Peninsula was abundant in copper and turquoise, valuable minerals for the military and decorative arts at home. And to the north, the patchwork kingdoms of Canaan, Syria, and even Cyprus had all bowed before the pharaohs at one time or another. Their rulers were petty, jealous kings who could not hold sway over their own lands. And so mighty kings like Ramesses II, Seti I, and Thutmose III had crushed the Canaanites and Syrians underfoot. Merneptah inherited this political situation. But by the time he came to power, things had changed significantly. Once, Egypt had enjoyed uncontested supremacy over Canaan, Syria, Libya, and Nubia. But in the last years of the 13th century, envious eyes watched these provinces, and slowly, but surely, drew their plans against them. Like many pharaohs before him, Merneptah was as much a war leader as he was a ruler. Early in his reign, he sent armies to the north to stamp out a rebellion in Canaan, We'll tell that story in full in another episode, but the king's troops marched into those lands early in his reign to assert his authority and crush any who resisted. The king also sent an army to the south. Supposedly, the Nubians, the lands of Wawat and Kush, had tried to rise up in rebellion, and Merneptah's forces marched against them. He described his victory as follows, quote, the hot blast from his mouth has gone against the land of Wawat. They are destroyed at one blow. They have no heirs left, for they have been carried off to Egypt. Their chieftains have been set on fire in the presence of their families. As for the remainder, some of them had their hands cut off because of their crime, and for others, their eyes and ears were removed, and they were taken to Cush, far to the south. They were made into piles in their settlements. Never again will Cush repeat rebellion, and evil befalls anyone who attacks the king. End quote. It's not entirely clear if that war is historical or simply a matter of propaganda and dramatic flourish, but you get a sense of Merneptah's brutality, his willingness to slaughter any who resist him. The same would be true for Merneptah's great enemy. These were people of the West, commonly known as Libyans. In year five of his reign, a coalition of Libyans, along with some foreigners, decided to move in to Egypt's land. We hear about this in an extended record. A large stela, a slab of stone covered with art and hieroglyphs, records Merneptah's war against the Libyans, and it goes into great detail on the context and the battles. Supposedly, a coalition of Libyan tribes, under a leader named Mariu, had gathered together, along with foreign allies and mercenaries, and they attempted to invade Egypt from the west. They came as an army and as a people, seeking new places to settle and to rule. Naturally, the Egyptians had to defeat them. Merneptah, 
describes the war as follows. Quote, The despicable, wretched ruler of Libya, Mariu, the son of Didi, has descended upon the land of Chechenu, or Libya, along with his troops. They include the Sherdin, the Shekelesh, the Akaiwasha, the Lukians, and the Tersha, and he was calling up every single warrior and able-bodied man of his land. But the pharaoh, Merneptah, was angry with the Libyans, like a lion. His troops and chariots went forth, with the creator Amun-Ra among them, and the violent Seth assisting them. Every Egyptian soldier killed a Libyan. The enemy wallowed in their own blood, and none of them escaped. Behold, the troops of Merneptah made six hours of destruction among the Libyans. The wretched chief of Libya fled in the depths of night, all alone. His wives were seized in his presence. End quote. Merneptah may have been an elderly figure, but his armies were strong. They marched west against the Libyans, and the foot soldiers, including spearmen, axemen, and chariots, wreaked a great slaughter among the enemy. Supposedly, the battle lasted for six hours, and it resulted in a total Egyptian victory. In the end, Mariu, the Libyan chieftain, had to flee by himself, and the Egyptians even captured his camp and private property, including several of his wives. Suffice to say, it was a bad day for the Westerners. One of the most interesting features of this story are the allies who came with the Libyans. Beyond the Western tribes, Merneptah also identifies groups like the Sherden, the Shekelesh, the Achiwasha, the Lukians, and the Tersha. Some of these are groups commonly associated with the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples are a genuinely mysterious force. They begin to appear in the early 13th century BCE, in scattered references to specific tribes and peoples. Some groups, like the Sherden or Shardana, had even served the pharaohs earlier as mercenaries. But apparently, these loose-knit, semi-independent groups were making their way across the eastern Mediterranean and the Near East around this time. And some of the sea peoples did not want to serve. They were quite happy to raid. The Sea Peoples will be a massive component in Total War Pharaoh. We will tell their story another time, but suffice to say, when you take command of any faction within this game, you will have to deal with this mighty threat. Curiously, it is in the reign of Merneptah that we get one of our earliest references to a battle against these people. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Merneptah's wars were a successful exercise in Egyptian imperial and military power, but his reign was not all bloodshed and conquest. While the Egyptian army faced some major threats, the land overall was still prosperous and relatively peaceful. 
In fact, Merneptah was just as active as a diplomat as he was a warlord. And during his reign, we even get an early example of international aid. Sometime during Merneptah's reign, the Egyptian government learned that a famine was sweeping through the land of Hatti. Hatti, or the Hittite kingdom, had traditionally been an enemy and rival to Egypt. But over the past few decades, the two kingdoms had grown closer and formed an alliance. Following a great battle during the time of Ramesses II, Hatti had subsequently made peace. So by the time of Merneptah, the Hittites and the Egyptians were on good terms. And when the pharaoh learned of a famine in Hatti, Merneptah actually decided to help. In one of his texts, Merneptah mentions the famine, and how, quote, I caused grain to be taken in ships to sustain this land of Hatti, end quote. So while Merneptah was a warrior, he could also be a friend. It's an interesting record, one that we haven't heard before. On the international stage, Merneptah was an accomplished ruler. His armies achieved great and violent victories. And in the world of diplomacy, he was true to his allies and assisted them in their time of need. At home, the king was also a builder. Merneptah has left several significant monuments throughout the Nile Valley. We don't have time to describe all of them, but one that is particularly significant is Merneptah's lavish palace. In the early 20th century, archaeologists uncovered the foundations of Merneptah's royal house. This palace was located in the great city of Memphis, one of the major settlements in northern Egypt. Memphis, aka Mennefer, or Enduring Beauty, or Hikupetah, the house of Ptah's spirit, was one of Egypt's oldest administrative capitals. Merneptah decided to build his royal palace here. Unfortunately, the palace is mostly destroyed, only the foundations remain. But archaeologists have scoured the monument and uncovered thousands of tiny artifacts that reveal its original appearance. Now, scholars can even reconstruct the ancient house of this pharaoh. We can see the elaborate halls in which Merneptah held court and conducted ceremonies of victory. We can also see the private apartments in which Merneptah may have rested during his visits to the capital. So the reign of this king is significant for giving us a glimpse behind the curtain of royal power, a greater idea of their day-to-day lives. I could spend much longer talking about these monuments, and one day I will. But for now, let's keep our focus on Merneptah's reign overall, and especially how it affected the political landscape of Egypt. Merneptah inherited power after the long and splendid reign of King Ramesses II. And Merneptah's own time was prosperous and accomplished. Unfortunately, even the most successful regimes carry the seeds of their own destruction. And Merneptah's was no different. As I mentioned at the start, Merneptah was not the eldest son of his father, Ramesses II. And King Ramesses had ruled for so long, more than 65 years, that the Egyptian government was effectively his product. By the time Ramesses died, the entire country was populated by people who did not know another ruler. That kind of transition can be difficult for power structures and political systems to navigate. If the new king, Merneptah, 
is too different from what came before, it might cause an upset in the pre-established political structure. There was also the problem of Merneptah's family. Merneptah was son number 13, but Ramesses II had dozens of children, and many of those children wound up having kids of their own. As a result, by the time Ramesses II died, the royal family, in its most basic sense, numbered dozens, even hundreds, of individuals. The Egyptian government and the higher levels of their society were filled with people who had a direct blood relationship to the previous pharaoh. Now, many of these people, lesser sons, grandsons, daughters, and granddaughters, might be comfortably placed in government positions, or moved into semi-retirement to live a life of luxury with no particular problem. But there would always be those who wanted more power for themselves, who wanted to exert greater control over the political, economic, and even military landscape of the country. When Meneptah came to power, he inherited a vast array of government individuals, all of whom had been appointed under Ramesses II. And for the first five or six years, Meneptah seems to have maintained that status quo. He didn't change things too much, and he didn't get rid of anyone significant. But around year seven or year eight, historians have noticed that many high-ranking officials suddenly disappear or change. It seems that nearly a decade into his reign, Merneptah decided to change many of the government positions. He removed individuals who had held power previously, and appointed new ones in their place. The king's motives are entirely unknown. Perhaps he was concerned that some individuals were getting too old, or perhaps he was trying to strengthen his own power and control over various groups. One individual is particularly significant. During Merneptah's early reign, the Viceroy of Kush, the king's governor in Sudan, or Nubia, was a man named Mesui. But around year 7 or 8, Merneptah fired Mesui and replaced him with another man. Historians suspect that this individual, Mesui, was actually known by another name, Amen Messi. The two names are identical, except for the inclusion of Amen, or Amun, the name of a god, which often drops off from Egyptian personal names. So Amen Messi and Mesui could very well be the same individual. That is significant, because Amen Messi was going to cause a great deal of trouble in the future. Sometime after he lost his job as the governor of Sudan, Mesui, or Amen Messi, led a rebellion against the Egyptian royal house, and he seems to have tried to claim the throne for himself. That is a story for another day, but if that is accurate, if historians have read the evidence correctly, then the troubles that afflicted the late 19th dynasty may have started here, in year 7 or 8 of King Merneptah. Ultimately, Merneptah would not rule for long. He was already mature, about 50 years old, when he finally took the throne, and his reign lasted 10, maybe 12 to 13 years. Ultimately, the aging king would pass to the west, but his decisions, particularly his reorganization of the government, were going to have lingering effects for many years to come. As total war pharaoh begins, Merneptah is still on the throne, but his time is approaching, 
And as you take command of one of the many factions, you must decide how to respond to the great pharaoh's legacy. Will you continue it as the king's chosen heir, Prince Seti II? Or will you overthrow it as the viceroy of Kush, Amen Messi? Perhaps you will come from a different path, taking Merneptah's daughter-in-law, Queen Tausaret, to power. Or perhaps you will command the outsider, Rameses, not born to royal power, but quite willing to seize it. The reign of Merneptah sets the scene for total war pharaoh. The board is ready, the pieces are moving. Now it is up to you. How far will you go to claim the thrones of Egypt? The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here.